0: Thank you very much. That is a great welcome. Thank you so much. Well, welcome to tonight's Big Conversation, filmed live here in uh, Costa Mesa, California. Uh, The Big Conversation is produced by Premier Christian Radio in partnership with the Templeton Religion Trust. And it's a series of video discussions between thinkers across the religious spectrum, looking at some of the biggest questions in life. Who are we? What's it all about? Uh, Looking at science, faith, philosophy, what it means to be human. Uh, I'm delighted to say that uh, tonight we're going to be uh, sitting down and hearing from two people that I've really been looking forward to bringing into conversation together. We're going to be looking at the question of, uh, is God dead? It's a conversation on faith, culture, and the modern world. Where are the next generation turning to in an increasingly pro post-Christian society? Is God dead, as Nietzsche once declared, or is there space for a renaissance of religious belief in the modern world? Uh, John Lennox, who is here on my left, is Emeritus Professor. Yeah, give him a round of applause. (laughs) (laughs) Just to give a brief intro, John is Emeritus Professor of Mathematics and the Philosophy of Science at Oxford University. He's a leading Christian thinker, and he's engaged many of the world's leading atheist voices as well. His latest book is called Can Science Explain Everything? And it is available as well after. Um, Dave Rubin is my other guest. Let's have a round of applause for Dave. Now, Dave hosts The Rubin Report. It's an online talk show that reaches millions of people every week. Um, uh, Dave is going to be telling us about his religious background and and where he's at now. So I won't sort of label him at this point, but he regularly hosts (laughs) conversations with leading cultural and religious thinkers on his show. So I'm really looking forward to what he's going to be bringing to this conversation today. Uh, He has a new book out, it's available for pre-order, uh, Don't Burn This Book, is the title, uh, <laughs> Thinking for Yourself in an Age of Unreason. So I do recommend you go and get that if you can on pre-order as well. Uh, so one more time, just please give a, a warm round of applause to my guest, John Levinson-Basley. Well, welcome, gentlemen both, uh, to tonight's discussion. I'm. Really looking forward to what we're going to be covering tonight because I've had you on the show before, John, and very often I've put you in conversation with maybe a quite firm atheist, someone like a a Dawkins or an Atkins or a Michael Roos. Um, But I think tonight's going to be a little bit different because I'm really looking forward to hearing your story, Dave. We haven't met before. In fact, tonight was the first time. Um, But I've watched your stuff and I've seen some of the people that you've increasingly been talking to and been influenced yourself, and and it'll be fascinating to hear where you're at now in terms of both the cultural and religious aspects of your worldview.
1: Well, I've never had anyone give me an intro and say, we'll label him later. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm feeling really undue pressure right now, and I'm the only one here from SoCal, so (laughs) let's see what happens.
0: Well, um, whatever those labels may be, um, I'm really looking forward to to what what you're going to bring to us tonight. Perhaps we'll, we'll start with you first of all, Dave. Tell us a little bit about who you are growing up. I know that you came from a pretty religious family, um, so do you want to tell a little bit about that and where you found yourself as you grew up and as regards sort of uh, faith and so on?
1: Sure. First off, I, I just want to say what a pleasure it is to be here. You know, I'm usually on the other side of the interview <laughs> yeah. and the reason I'm particularly excited about tonight is that I don't talk about this sort of thing from a personal perspective that often. You know, I've sat down with tons of atheists, you know, Sam Harris and Michael Shermer and Peter Boghossian and that whole crew and I've talked to plenty of people uh, of faith like Bishop Barron and Rabbi Wolpe and plenty of other people that come from, from different political perspectives and personal perspectives. Um, and I, I always find that I go into each interview with with no agenda other than hearing their thoughts and and seeing how that shakes out around my worldview. That being said, I'm excited to be here because I can sort of tell you a little bit more about about where I come from and sort of where I'm at. So I grew up in a conservative Jewish household in New York. Um, We kept kosher, we did uh, Shabbat on Friday nights, all all the big holidays, Um, but there was a strong secular belief within that. And as I was telling you sort of backstage, you know, there's, a, there's an interesting piece related to Judaism that I think is a little different than other religions in that the ethnic tie to it, at least in a modern way, is for most Jews more important than the religious nature of it specifically. Let's say belief specifically. Uh, because John, as we were talking about, there are many, many Jews, especially in, in sciences and in mathematics that aren't believers per se, but have a real cultural affinity. And I would say that, that's sort of where I'm at, um, or at least where I've been over the last couple of years. I actually am now in the last few years, and this has to do uh, a lot with being on tour with Jordan Peterson for a year. Uh, Jordan and I did about 110 stops in, in one calendar year in about 20 countries. It was pretty amazing. And, and when you spend that kind of time listening to a, a true innovative thinker. I mean, truly the guy that I think is is the world's most important public philosopher, let's say. Um, you know, talking about his biblical lectures and talking about his perspective on life and that there has to be a bedrock of something that is real and true outside of us. And then how he relates that through the, the biblical stories. Um, it moved me. It moved me over the course of, of the year that we did this together. So I would say I'm I'm secular basically in my life, but I definitely in the last year have found that there has to be something outside of mm-hmm. us. The rest of this makes no sense. I mean, the the part very briefly the part that you know I'm really known for is the is the political part and that I was a lefty and and the difference between you leftism... and kind of had a
0: political conversion, I had it Right, so yeah.
1: I'm, I'm usually much more comfortable talking about my yeah. political conversion <laughs> than, than, a, than a religious one. Um, but, but I would say this, that consistent with me talking about sort of what's happened with the postmodern left, with mm. the progressives, and we see this now, where there's sort of nothing that's empirically true. And any, any given day, you can feel anything about any particular topic. Um, there's a reason for that. And the reason is they've disconnected everything. Their whole worldview is disconnected to anything that came before them. So that, that could be God or, or a religious set of ideas or something like that. So I'm really, really fascinated by that at the moment. And it's, it's changing how I live my life. I, I just did, it was Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day in Judaism. I was at a service that was actually at a church in, in Pasadena in Los Angeles, hosted by, by Dennis Prager that I'm sure many of you guys know about. Uh, Dennis Prager, who many of you know. So uh, I'm sort of, I'm, I would say I'm in it the way you guys are all in it. Well, trying to find some truth in, in the I'll, madness.
0: I'll be interested to tease that out a, l- a little more in due course. I mean, one one thing I did notice is I, I have seen just watching some of your videos that there definitely been a progression in your thinking on this. and And probably if you go back a few years, I think you had said along the lines of you probably thought of yourself as an atheist, but evidently that's not quite the case anymore.
1: Well, I had a bunch of atheists, high-profile atheists on the show in a row, yeah. uh, starting with Sam Harris, who I, I admire, and he's a good friend of mine, uh, and Michael Shermer and Peter Boghossian. And I really love the intellectual side of that. I, I really, really do love it. And that's not at the exclusion of anything else, actually. Um, but what I found was that I had had a series of atheists on in a row, and then people online just kept saying that I was an atheist. Right. And, and then I sort of just said it one day without, <laughs> It didn't, it didn't mean anything to me sort of right. one way or another. It was almost, it just, sort of came, it just sort of came out of my mouth one day. And then uh, two years ago, you know, I do this off the grid August thing, where I, I literally lock my phone in a safe and I don't look at any news or television. I am completely offline and I, I really disappear and I try to let my brain reset. And, and two years ago when I did it, um, one of the thoughts that I kept having sort of in my, in my piece was that I'm not an atheist. Ever wish you could always have perfectly pressed clothes but hate to iron and don't want to spend lots of money on dry cleaning? Well, now there's Turbo Extreme Steam Handheld Steamer from Conair. It's easier and faster than an iron and saves you a ton on dry cleaning. This lightweight, compact model is the most powerful handheld steamer with 1,875 watts of turbocharged steam. It literally gets you fresh, pressed, and out the door in minutes. It heats up in a hurry with five steam settings for everything from delicates to suits, so I like to steam my shirts and jackets right before the show. The turbo setting smooths away even the toughest wrinkles on thick fabrics like sweaters. This steamer has a dual-slotted ceramic plate that lets you press like an iron without an ironing board, and it has a built-in creaser so you can make perfect pleats like the dry cleaner does. Try Conair's Turbo Extreme Steam Handheld Steamer and you'll be amazed at how great it makes your clothes look. It even works on curtains, your bed, your pet's bed, you name it. Available online at multiple retailers and now back to the show. I came back and I said it in a very casual way on I just did this live stream where I just sort of said it very flippantly that I just don't like the word atheist. It doesn't, it doesn't fit what I believe. I do believe right. in something else, even if I can't completely articulate what it is. I think Jordan has gone a long way to right. articulating yeah. the type of thing that I believe in. Um, and I got a lot, of, a lot of hate for that one. Um, right. Because, you know, the atheists, they don't like a converted person either, so. <laughs> You know, you got to watch out for that too. So, you know, we, we all have our own trappings, but what I'm most interested in um, is, is talking to people from all walks of life and figuring out what the common stuff is. And what I like to frame that around is a conversation about freedom and how do we, how do we limit government well, so we can all believe what we want to believe and think what we want to think mm-hmm. and, and be part of a society that's pluralistic and, and decent for all of us.
0: John, let's have a bit of an introduction to you for those who aren't familiar with you. Um, Tell us about your own uh, faith journey up to this point. Um, You now obviously speak to many people all over the world about Christianity, but but where did it all begin for you?
2: It began for me, and let me say as well, how delighted I am to be back in Costa Mesa. And I've enjoyed in the past some marvellous shows with Justin and I'm just fascinated by what's gonna happen in the conversation tonight. But I grew up in Northern Ireland, which isn't always the best start to uh, (laughs) discuss religion because it was a divided community and there was a lot of terrorism that was connected in a very complex way to Christianity of both versions, Protestant and Catholic. But the important thing was that my parents were very unusual for that kind of cultural context. They were Christian, convinced Christians, but they weren't sectarian, and that was very unusual. My father had a small business. We lived in a small town, 15,000 or so, and he tried to employ people from both sides of the community. Now, why did he do that? I once asked him, I said, Dad, it's so risky. And he was bombed for doing this. My brother nearly lost his life. And he said, look, he said, I believe that every person, whatever they believe, is of infinite value because they're made in the image of God, going back to the Hebrew scriptures. And therefore, I will employ across the community. And that has stuck with me. And it's been very important when you're discussing, as I often do, with people that do not share my worldview. That always comes to my mind. Here's a person in front of me, and it relates to what you were saying about freedom. I would connect with freedom, value. That here's something outside of my parents that gave every human being dignity and value. That was point number one. The second thing was that they allowed me to think. Now, Northern Ireland's often associated with religious bigotry, extreme fundamentalism, all this kind of thing. And my parents were not highly educated, but they really gave me space. So my first encounter with Christianity was not mind closing, it was mind expanding. And I remember, When I was about 13, my father came along, he says, here's a book you need to read. It was Marx's Das Kapital. I said, Dad, have you read it? He said, no. (laughs) (laughs) So why should I read it? You need to know what other people think. i never forget that. It was set a compass bearing. The third point is their Christianity was credible, morally credible. They actually lived what they believed. So in that sense, I had a hugely privileged background that didn't compress me into a narrow-minded, bigoted person. And it was noticeable when I went to Cambridge in 1962, not 1862, I know I look old, (laughs) but when I went to Cambridge in 1962, many of my contemporaries from Ireland, the moment they got out of the country, that was the end of any Christianity because they'd never made it their own. They'd never thought about it. But I'd been encouraged to think about it. And that sort of set the the compass bearing. There's one further point that really shaped my life. I was challenged in Cambridge very early on by a student at table at night. And he said, asked, do you believe in God? And then he said, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I shouldn't have asked you that. You're Irish. all you Irish believe in God and you fight about it. I'd heard that many times. But somehow it was different. And I thought, gosh, yes, you know, I've never really met atheists. You know, in Ireland, people divide into Protestant atheists and Catholic atheists. (laughs) But they're they're not really, real atheists. So I thought, what I'm going to do is to start today and befriend people, befriend them that's important, that do not share my worldview. And I've spent my whole life doing it. So that's, that yeah, really sets yeah, the, yeah. The, the scene, I think. So,
0: Nietzsche famously declared, God is dead. Now, he may have been a bit premature in that, but maybe he's finally, you know, his thoughts are coming true in 21st century West, because we are living in an increasingly post-Christian age, people say. Increasingly, the number of people who tick the census box that says none, no religious affiliation is going up and so on. I mean, you're, you're engaging with this kind of demographic all the time on your show, Dave. Um, what's your feeling? Do you, do you feel like um, people are genuinely less religious now? To what extent are the, some of those friends that you made early on in your show, people like Sam Harris and another well-known atheist responsible for people moving away from, you know, the religious bearings that, that they once had?
1: So obviously, I I don't want to speak for for Sam or any of those guys. Uh, What I have found in in the conversations that I've had with non-believers and with believers is that at a micro level, you can be a non-believer and be absolutely moral and decent and good and a a productive member of society and all of those things, as I believe those couple people that I mentioned are. Uh, What I think is becoming the problem, and I think this is really where Jordan Peterson hit on something, is that societies can't organize around that? That it can sort of work for a while. And there's, you know, most of the things that I believe in, and I, you know, I, I talk about the individual all the time, and why I believe that classical liberalism is the best sort of framework for a political system that we should have. Um, they almost can't exist without that underlying bedrock. And so, your question sort of gets to what I was saying earlier, which is that the reason that the secular world feels so out of control right now, I mean, just, just yesterday, I'm sure some of you guys saw the CNN did this uh, Equality Town Hall last night, and it was like, you know, everyone has to mention their gender pronouns, and you have to admit that there are more than two genders, and all of these things that we know these conversations are not being had. There are settled science debates that went on for a long time. That we know, we know what facts are, and yet we find because this has now become untethered to anything other than how you feel, uh, that now everything is up for grabs. And that's why it sort of feels like that there's something sort of godless happening here, or, or something mm-hmm. like that. Now, trust me, that is a that is a hard thing for someone like me to say. Uh, you know, as someone that really my my beliefs really are rooted in the Enlightenment and the Enlightenment thinkers. Um, And this is a real debate amongst people who talk about the Enlightenment. Could they have done it? Could they have reformed religions and and burst liberalism in a positive way forward without some religious belief behind it? I I don't know the answer to that exactly. I don't know that we'll ever really know the answer to that. Um, But I would say that the reason I first said that I'm happy to be here with you guys is that in the last year, where now I virtually only get invited to events by conservative groups or, you know, libertarian groups for sure, but groups on the right, let's say, but I often get invited to churches. I often get invited to places of faith. Now, I know we can go through a litany of political disagreements that we may or may not have, and I absolutely know that everyone in this room would be happy to do that. And there would be nobody fighting, there would be nobody screaming. We could explore those ideas as far as we can. And then we would put it down and and either agree to disagree or maybe maybe we'd move each other one way or another and and that would be wonderful. Um, And I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence that you guys here uh, and that generally believers right now are more tolerant. They are, it's just the reality. The, The people, yeah. Give yourselves a round of applause. That's I mean that really is true. Who who are the most intolerant people in society right now? It's the people that are constantly telling you how tolerant they are everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk you could get in a crash people could get hurt or killed but let's take a moment to look at some surprising statistics almost 29 people in the united states die every day in alcohol impaired vehicle crashes that's one person every 50 minutes even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the last three decades drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives each year many people are unaware that driving while high can be just as dangerous in 2015 40 two percent of drivers killed in crashes tested positive for drugs not so harmless after all is it and get this from 2007 to 2015 marijuana use among drivers killed in crashes doubled the truth is driving while high is deadly so stop kidding yourself if you're impaired from alcohol or drugs don't get behind the wheel if you feel different you drive differently drive high get a DUI. drive sober or get pulled over and now back to the show that's the, that's the irony. It's the people that tell you you're a bunch of racists and bigots and homophobes and the rest of it. And, and that's the real bizarre flip that we have happening in society. And I think that is linked to either, a, however you want to phrase it, either a, a post-Christian world or a post-Judeo-Christian world or, or a post-modern world, however you want to define that.
0: I mean, to what extent do you agree with Dave's analysis there of what's going on, especially, I suppose, at that academic level and uh, in terms of the the kind of conversations now that you are and aren't allowed to have almost uh, when it comes
2: to these issues? I think it's a pretty accurate analysis. And that's what I experience out there. I'm always interested in the phrase, God's dead, because it seems to assume he was alive once. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, (laughs) I hear Richard Dawkins kind of saying, which God? And I think that's a question worth addressing because the God that I believe in, that is the God of the Bible, is eternal. And that raises problems for the deadness, doesn't it? But uh, there's a sense in which Nietzsche was a very accurate prophet. And what, to my mind, is very important with him was that he could see where many contemporary atheists cannot see that if you abolish God, you wipe the ground under any solidity on which you can base a morality, human dignity, freedom, all those values. He saw that connection. And he said, if you get rid of God, you've no right in the end to values. And you notice where the values are real out in our society, they're mostly values that go back to the Judeo-Christian tradition. And I think, therefore, to bring that back into the discussion. I like the idea, and I think it's a very important start where there's something more. There's something outside of us. That's the start, it seems to me, of coming back to something around which society can be organized because otherwise everything is subjective. And you mentioned postmodern, and it amuses me that so many, uh, But it's sad that so many of these people will tell you as an absolute truth that there is no truth. And that's just sheer nonsense.
0: <laughs> yeah, because it's a contradiction in terms. Yes. I, I mean, you, you obviously spend quite a lot of time speaking, especially to actually a lot of young people. In, yes, I do. Many of the events you do, John. Do, do you find that there's a kind of people are looking again for a source of meaning, for something to hold on to?
2: Absolutely. I think that... Well, it's, it's country specific because there are parts of the world, of course, where, for example, Christianity is growing like wildfire. But in the UK and in the US, I find that young people find the world that is presented to them by people like the old new atheists or the naturalistic philosophy is too small to live in it doesn't give them any kind of solid foundation so they're looking again and just what last week i spoke to central hall westminster 1500 young people starting at the age of 13 to 18 Absolutely fascinated spending a whole day thinking about these big ideas. That I find enormously encouraging when young folks start asking these questions. And I find a huge response around the world, but it's self selecting. You know, it's very difficult for me to give a global and fair assessment.
0: I mean, it strikes me, Dave, that you did this 100 city tour with Jordan Peterson, and it strikes me that the crowds that have flocked to hear him talk about meaning in a meaningful way have been quite young the kind of crowd that you kind of might have expected more to be turning out to hear the Sam Harriss and the Christopher hitchens and and, uh, and Richard Dawkins and so on what what what's changed why, why, why in a sense has the conversation moved on from well, we all know God's dead to well what's going to happen next I suppose
1: well it's really interesting because if you were paying attention to the the media around Jordan during the year the implication somehow, or the condemnation, I should say, from the media was that somehow this was for young, uh, straight white men. That he's only talking to straight white men as if inherently that's somehow an evil thing, right? <laughs> so that was the idea that he's somehow these really broken, straight white men are showing up to his events and that's somehow inherently evil. Now, of course, that's absurd. If it, Let's say he was talking to all straight, young, white men. If he, if he happened to have been giving them something positive that could put a little order in their life away from the chaos, as he would put it, that, that would actually be a wonderful thing. Of course, the irony is that that actually wasn't even true at all because the crowds were wonderfully diverse and I usually thought they were about 60, 40 male to female and age range all over the place and all that. Um, but to answer your question specifically, I think that we got As politics and the media and social media and the fact that we're all walking around with a phone in our pocket that has the world's knowledge and you can connect with somebody, you know, literally across the world in a split second, I think we have no idea how this information Orgy, basically. I think we have no idea how it's affecting our brains, our ability to think clearly about things. It's doing wondrous things, right? We're all here because of this. This is a podcast, right? We're, We're disseminating this through the digital world. This is incredible. But it also has destabilized sort of basic beliefs. And I think then Jordan stepped in and said, we have to be able to get some meaning out of this. So that's why he wrote 12 rules. He thought these are 12 rules in a modern sense. He wasn't handing down the 10 Commandments again, but he was saying in a modern sense, these are 12 things you can do. Stand up straight with your your shoulders back. Clean your room, clean your room before you clean the world. Uh, These are basic things where now we have people that wanna fix the world constantly that that can't fix themselves. They're doing it backwards. Um, But but just very briefly on the, the underpinning, of, of some sort of belief that can lead to freedom. Uh, and that's what, sort of what I was talking about about mm-hmm. the enlightenment. Think about you know, the, the, the founding documents of this country, I think are the greatest man, man-written documents, let's say, political documents at least. And what did the founders say? They said these are God-given rights. They're self-evident. We did not give you these rights the right of freedom and of free speech and all things. We can protect these things, but we didn't give them to you because they came from somewhere else. That is so deeply important and and in many ways very unique to America. And that's why there's such a bizarre assault on freedom of speech right now and and on actually almost everything in the Bill of Rights. And it comes mostly from the secular world. That, that is a really sad Ooh. twist that truly I, I would not have expected a couple of years ago. Yeah. E- even as someone that saw this coming. I mean, right. you know, five years ago, I was waving the, the, the flag going, guys, there's something happening here on the left, this progressive thing. This is no good. Uh, but even it's gotten so crazy yeah. that, that I'm still a little surprised myself.
0: To, to some extent, it's almost as though the, the, the meaning crisis has almost created this vacuum and people are finding all kinds of crazy things to, to oh yeah they're, they're looking anywhere
1: you can look to you can play video games all day you can you can do whatever it is to fill up mm. that hole yeah. if, if yeah. it's an existential hole or a hole in belief or, yeah. or whatever it is but there's a lot there's a lot of ways to fill that hole I think Jordan Jordan in, in my opinion has given the best set of, of beliefs that take from a religious tradition, and blend what I would say are enlightenment values, or basically secular values, Judeo Christian values, and he's blended them in the most um, effective way. Hey, I wanna remind my listeners time is running out on Simply Safe's huge holiday offer. It's their biggest sale of the year, so take advantage now and keep your home safe over the holidays. If you're looking to fully protect your home, now is the time to do it. Burglars know families are traveling and people leave their new expensive gifts lying around. That's why your choice for home security should be the easy choice. It's Simply Safe, award-winning home security at a fair price. Simply Safe protects every room, door, and window with 24-7 professional monitoring. And if there's a break in, Simply Safe can give real-time video confirmation so police respond up to 3.5 times faster. Prices are fair and honest, starting at just 15 bucks a month. Simply Safe made a holiday offer with my listeners in mind but it ends on december 31st they rarely do deals this big so now's your chance visit simplysafe.com slash reuben to find out just how much you'll save and remember this sale ends on december 31st go today simplysafe.com slash reuben and now back to the show
0: i mean as we're on the subject talking about jordan peterson i, I know that you're somewhat familiar with some of what he's been doing as well, John. What what's your take on what he's put his finger on that obviously so many people are responding to? And and yeah, what what how does it relate in your view to to the Christian faith that you hold?
2: I think people are longing for sense. And you mentioned connectedness. That has almost replaced meaning, but it's not real connectedness. And I was reading a book on artificial intelligence just recently and it was warning that people will die if they're not connected to the internet because all the meaning is being placed there and I think what Jordan Peterson is doing is putting a nuclear bomb in the middle of that and saying this is not good enough you've got to get outside of that and you're right It is rewiring brains. The the psychologists tell us it's messing people's brains up, especially if they try and use two machines at once. And therefore, I just think that there's an underlying, and from where I sit, people are looking for this because although they often don't believe it or even have never heard of it, they are made in the image of God. They're beings who've got eternity in their hearts and a kind of materialist universe without meaning just won't satisfy them because they're actually made for something bigger. And as C.S. Lewis put it years ago, if, if you find a longing in you that's not satisfied in this world many, there is another world in which it could be satisfied, and you can apply that to the world of ideas. So I really think he's hit a nerve. And, and interestingly,
0: if you read his book, Twelve Rules for Life, and he's done a number yes, of lectures, mm-hmm. there's, he's drawing a great deal on the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Oh, sure. Yeah. He
2: is, especially the Old Testament. And it has intrigued me that he has concentrated in his lectures on the Bible on the Old Testament. Now, that to me resonates completely because I, as a Christian, have been for years trying to communicate to people that they've got to begin to take the Jewish scriptures seriously. Because there you've got the foundation, the foundation story. And people are looking for a story that's big enough to fit their lives into. And there's the start of the big story, creation. Human beings made in the image of God. And what that means for their dignity and their freedom and everything else If we just get that one fact, I remember in Siberia, where I used to go quite a bit, and I gave the first lecture in 75 years on these issues in the University of Novosibirsk. And I made the point, I said, just think of the one statement human beings made in the image of God. And I said, if I believed that, I wouldn't murder One of you, let alone the 100 million that Stalin did, and it absolutely erupted the place. Of course, they'd never heard it before. It was totally new to them. And I think our society needs to hear these truths, and Jordan Peterson is moving into that area because he's actually going back to the book and not being ashamed of it. And more power to him, I say.
1: Yeah, and just very briefly, just from, from being on tour with Jordan, I told you this backstage, but I never saw the guy break one of the 12 rules. I mean, try to imagine how chaotic his life was in the course of this becoming a massive star, traveling all over the world, the book sales, the celebrity, the entire thing. And he never broke one one of those twelve rules. Uh, just twenty seconds. We were at a we were at a dinner party at Douglas Murray's house with Majid Nawaz and, and Jordan. You may know those guys. And one of the rules is that if you see a pet, uh, if you see a cat in the street, you should pet it. And Douglas had a cat. And. <laughs> We're there for about three or four hours. We're having dinner. We're having a great time. And I'm looking at the cat the whole time. And I'm looking at Jordan. I'm going, the guy hasn't pet the cat. Like, <laughs> you know, what am I on tour with this guy for? Like, is the whole thing, is, it, is he a fraud? You know, what's going on here? I swear to God, I was thinking it the entire time. And then as we were walking out the door, Jordan literally, and you can sort of picture Jordan, he's, he's very tall and, and he has long limbs and he's, he's slender. And he basically sat down in the cat's bed with the cat. And, and stroke the cat wow. for, for a good five minutes, and I thought, all right, he's the real deal. There
0: go. We, we should probably talk about someone other than Jordan Peterson tonight. <laughs> and, uh, the, I mean, I, I, I'd love to key in a little bit more on your story, sure. Dave, because it sounds like you have been on something of a, uh, a journey of discovery over the last year or two, and obviously very much influenced by, by the way Jordan has brought that alive in his lectures and so on. So. I mean, you you obviously now are seeing more and more the value of religion. What what has that caused you personally to do in terms of maybe, is it causing you to rediscover your own Jewish roots a bit more and and the the religious aspect of that?
1: Well, I would say there's two things here, as I said at the beginning. There's sort of just the cultural affinity and the understanding of the history of the people that came before me, which you know, unfortunately in the case of the Jews is a, is a pretty brutal, uh, often almost unimaginably horrific history. Um, and I, you know, I grew up around Holocaust survivors and, and, I, and I know that. That though, the, the pain of your ancestors or whatever the, the history of your people is can't be the thing that defines you going forward. I would say as I've sat down with believers and non-believers alike I've genuinely found, well, I guess sort of this would get to what you were saying, John. I've genuinely found the believers, not only more welcoming, so like in a, in a situation like this, but more, more open, actually happier, less, less dependent on things outside of themselves, more self-reliant, let's say. Um, so I don't think that means I'm going to be religious per se tomorrow. That being said, as I said, I went to this Yom Kippur service that Dennis Prager hosted, and I found it incredibly moving. Um, and you know, Dennis gave a sermon that you know, he talked all about Judeo-Christian values and sort of what's happening in our country right now and how it all seems to be becoming untethered. And he used some religious backing to, to give some value there, and I thought, well, this is value. This is something, a real-world way that I could come somewhere once a week or build some community around or friends, um, that would have value. So I can't say I'm, you know, it's like, if, if ultimately I can see in your eye, you want me to be like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, let's go. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can see it, there's a guy back there waving a Jesus sign at me. All right, I see you. Um, <laughs> well, if you insist. Yeah. I- um, Let's put it this way. I have no problem with Jesus. I like the guy. You know what I mean? Like the the message of Jesus, all of the things that we've talked about here on stage and backstage, I I love these ideas. I think that if if my life becomes a continuing conversation about these things and I can incorporate the best parts of that to be a better person, well, I'll tell you this. I, I know for a fact. I am a better person today than I was before I started this journey with Jordan. That those things, and that doesn't mean I prescribe to the church of Jordan Peterson, <laughs> that is just that this guy who has communicated the, the bedrock ideas uh, that we're talking about here, um, by, by me listening to that and hearing that and incorporating some of that in my life, I'm a better person. So that, ha- that means something, yeah. you, you, know, yeah. you know what I mean?
0: Any comments on, on Dave's journey so far?
1: I feel like this is my life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're on the right. psychiatrist's yeah. couch
1: tonight. <laughs> hey, Ruben Report podcast listeners. Just a quick reminder that my first book, Don't Burn This Book, Free Thinking in an Age of Unreason is now available for pre-order. In it, I show you guys how to navigate a world of outrage mobs, political polarization, and online censorship without totally losing your mind. Oh, and that Jordan Peterson guy is writing the forward. Not bad. Pre-order your copy now on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or go to don'tburnthisbook.com and order yours today.
2: Well, I think what struck me just listening was you're being moved by Yom Kippur. I'm not Jewish by background, but I owe everything to a Jew. And the history of the Jews has been enormously important to me. And when you mention the Holocaust, as you do, and I've been in Auschwitz many times, and I've wept every time, and I have many Jewish friends who lost everybody, and that raises huge, deep existential questions. And therefore, just thinking of the the big picture, the big biblical story, and, I love it because although there are all sorts of twists and turns and difficulties, I see the Jewish history, the history of Israel, the law of the prophets, as pointing towards something big. Because at the heart of Judaism, and I have many Orthodox friends who still expect Hamashiach, the Messiah, to come. Now the difference is that I believe he has come. And Yom Kippur means a huge amount to me because in those Jewish festivals, and I've been at many of them, I see, I don't want to put it crudely, but a thought model that has been fulfilled in what Jesus did. And I find Yom Kippur moving because I see in him the fulfillment of it And here is a person who actually died the day of atonement. It's an atonement to deal with. Now here comes the point. That what happens when you start with a creation story and people made in the image of God, that's wonderful. But we know that something has happened. A bomb has hit the human race. And there are huge problems. And we long for a solution. We long for justice, we long for true freedom, we long for true values, and we've got to therefore face the problem of human rebellion against God. Now, the sin word is not popular these days, but it seems to me that there's a fulfillment within what Jesus did and taught, a fulfillment of everything that Judaism stood for and stands for powerfully. And therefore, I I feel a close affinity here. The, The whole Judeo tradition is immensely important to me because there I find these fundamental values. But they raise a big question. And it's the fulfillment of that. The whole history of Israel, it's sacrifices, the institutions, the prophets looking forward to Messiah who will deal with the basic problem of human rebellion. Uh, And so that's clearly a difference between me and Judaism, but I wouldn't underemphasize the huge contribution that it has made to the rock on which I believe I stand today, if that makes sense.
1: Well, it does make sense, and if I could quickly, I I actually do want to answer your question a little more specifically now that I I had a moment to, to think it through. Uh, so this year I, I went, my parents live in, in New York, still in the same family home that I grew up in, um, and I went to temple on Rosh Hashanah, and Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the new year, and it's, a, it's about creation, and then basically you have the week or so between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur where you're supposed to think about your life, the things that you've done, the good things that you've done, the bad things that you've done, ap- apologize to people if you've done, you know, who, whoever you may have done harm. And I, I really did, so this is, this is the real answer to your question, I really did that this year. I really did think about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Probably didn't fully uh, get there on Twitter throughout the week, I probably <laughs> did drop the ball a couple times on Twitter, but I, but I really was very aware of that, and, and I tried, you know, just a few days ago at, at services, I really was trying to be cognizant of, it doesn't necessarily matter if I believe in all of this, all of it, fully but there is value in this. This story that has been told by my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents going way back when, there must have been something that kept this thing alive and there must have been some reason behind it. And for me to pretend that I'm so enlightened that I have figured out something that is so brilliant that I could that I could just set all that aside, that it, to me that strikes me as the worst sort of like, egomaniacal hubris that you could have. So I would be happy to do this again next year, and we can continue the conversation. The Jesus guy's still waving at
0: me <laughs> back there. But, you know. <laughs> I, 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 I'm finding this fascinating, because obviously there has been something of a of a spiritual awakening. And, and I think, you know, it sounds like you're saying, you, I'm not quite sure what that looks like exactly, but I want to start to investigate and live into this kind of tradition more that obviously you're have have done so um i, I mean th- there's there's a lot of people out there you know who would say come on wake up it's the 21st century uh we all know that these are just superstitions and, and everything else and well, you need to get on the the bandwagon of reason you're about reason dave yeah. and and if we just think straight work things out with science and logic then then that's the, the way forward that's the way hum- we, religion is kind of <laughs> The way we used to do things, not anymore. Well,
1: yeah. Well, I think the counter to that would be the, everything that Jordan has talked about—not not to bring this back to Jordan—but the counter of that is that, well, look, sort of where the secular world is at, where we can't figure out whether you're male or female anymore. We have to now debate that. I, you know, I don't. It's sort of like I don't like using that one because it's so easy and it sounds sort of sort of glib, and I don't mean it to be that way. But that is where this is all leading if there is nothing outside of ourselves then john as you said everything else is subjective and we will debate every little thing debate d- depending on how we feel about it on any given day and that that will lead there is a, there's a reason why right now the idea of socialism is suddenly popping up in america which is the, the wor- genuinely the worst set of collectivist ideas that you could possibly ever have that hundreds of millions of people have died in history mm-hmm. under and it's popping up because if you listen to what's happening on the left right now politically, because they've outsourced God. Imagine if one of those people on stage said that they were a real believer. Imagine if any of them. Maybe Biden could do it. But, but, but really the rest of them can't. They would never really say that they're a believer. Now, I don't know what they are, and I wouldn't want them to say anything that's not true to themselves. Um, but they would be mocked by, by everything mainstream. Everything mainstream would mock them. The way that everything mainstream mocks any Christian that happens because they're usually on the right. They happen to be conservatives. But look what they're offering us now. Their answer is, okay, we've removed God from the equation and what do we get? We get government. And they they, they now pray basically to government. They think that they can figure out somehow by sitting in a room with a bunch of other politicians and bureaucrats, the worst sort of people that exist. (laughs) They... (laughs) I didn't even mean that to be funny, but actually. <laughs> I mean, but that's what they think. They think that they can rejigger all of humanity in a way that will be so much better than everything that came before them. And not only can't they, they are going to do the complete reverse. So that, if for no other reason, if for no rev- grand revelation or something like that, that would be a reason to be respectful of people that are believers. Because they can fight that in a way that secularists can't. The good liberals don't have enough juice. Mm. In and of of themselves, they don't have enough juice to fight that. That's why liberalism has collapsed Mm. in the name of progressivism.
2: Yeah, I I approach this in two ways. The first one is your comment that secularism is collapsing. one can analyze the defects in atheism and where it leads to and the millions of people that died in the last century. But coming over to the other side, what you're saying, Justin, you see, I am a scientist. And one of the fascinating things is that science is a direct legacy of the Judeo-Christian tradition. You are saying we're all scientists now and all this is no, it is not. And Let's start absolutely basic. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hebrew Bible, written millennia ago, knew there was a beginning. It was in the early 60s before scientists caught up with that. (laughs) And the Bible was right. And Dawkins said, well, there was a 50-50 chance when I debated him. And I said, at least the Bible got it right. But more seriously than that, you see, The fact that I'm a mathematician and interested in science, just think about that. The fact that mathematics can describe what goes on in the universe is a matter of huge wonder. Einstein once said, the only incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. And he saw the problem. Why does it work? It's not an incomprehensible thing if you start from the idea that there's an intelligent God who made us in his image and therefore we can do science and that's exactly what the early pioneers of modern science, starting with Galileo and Kepler and Newton and so on and so forth, they were all believers in God. And therefore when I hear that kind of question, I'm not remotely ashamed of being a scientist and a Christian because I want to argue that it was Christianity gave me my subject. And C.S. Lewis put it brilliantly. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you understood it in the end. Um, (laughs) C.S. Lewis said, Men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in the lawgiver. And I think we're getting to the stage now where serious atheist thinkers are beginning to re-examine the kind of naturalism that reduces everything to physics and chemistry. And one of them lives in New York. His name is Thomas Nagel. And he's a brilliant philosopher. And he says something's going wrong because if everything is reducible to physics and chemistry, then so is your mind. But then why would you trust your mind? In other words, atheism, taken to its logical conclusion, undermines the very rationality you need to trust to do science. And I'm not in for accepting a worldview that undermines the foundations of any kind of argument or discussion whatsoever. So I think that in the 21st century, we can push back on that very naive notion that God's out, we do science now. No. Science actually brings God back in.
0: It's, it's very interesting. I mean, I all mean, <laughs> of. All of this leads me to, to want to ask you at this point, Dave. You, you're sitting down with John here tonight, obviously um, a Christian believer, uh, someone who gives evidences for God. And I know that on your show, you've, you've had people like Bishop uh, uh, Barron Baron, and yeah. uh, I think uh, Ravi Zacharias is going to be featured shortly. Um, where does this leave you on, if you like, that God question? Because at one level, I can absolutely see the way in which there's a kind of utility and a kind of sense in which meaning we can gather meaning from doing the religious things, the rituals, and so on. But at the end of the day, and I asked this of Jordan Peterson once, and it was an interesting answer. Do you believe in God? Do you feel like that's where you've got to at this point in your
1: life? You know, it's funny, when we would do the Q&As at the shows with Jordan, for the first few, we would let people come up to the microphone, and what usually happens is that people start telling their life story, and they they would want to get th- a therapy session in front of 3,000 <laughs> strangers, and it, it started getting very weird, so we decided... Uh we decided a better way, to, we used an app to do it, and, and when Jordan was on stage, basically Ooh. I would uh, go through the best ones, and I'd find some funny Ooh. ones and some serious ones and, and everything else. But what always came up, no matter how many times <laughs> Jordan answered it, was, do you believe in God? And he, as I'm sure he said to you, he finds it to be sort of the most annoying question possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. I think I would answer it, I mean, I would answer it in, in a similar way that Jordan would, that look, I think I've, I've sort of laid out a, a set of beliefs here that show the utility of believing in something outside of myself, and I do, I do believe in that. Mm-hmm. So if you want to call that God, that there is something outside of me, there is something that is connecting all of us that has nothing to do with the material world. There is something that drives us, That that is the driver of humanity, that is something good. Um, I believe that. I, I don't, I can't, yeah, I believe that.
0: Thank you. Um, but, but, but. Could you put a name on that, something, at this point? That's oh. I, I told you I wanted to label you before yeah. the end of the evening. Jesus? I guess, I, I mean, in a sense, the, the, I, I hear what you're saying. Do I get a cookie at least? I mean, yeah, come on, people, what are we doing here? I, I, guess, I guess it's kind of like... What are the particulars of what? What would that look? How, how is that going to make a difference? I suppose in your life, is is there a sort of sense in which you feel now any new obligations, given this kind of new sense that there there is something beyond? Yourself?
1: You know, I think we're all sort of wired differently, right? I think some people can really um, can really flourish just sort of on, on their own set of ideas that they create in the world, and I think that can really work for some people. I think some people need some order outside of that, some people need more of a community, some people are real loners, all of those things. I think perhaps, but I, but I truly mean what I said before, I'd be happy to do this every year with you and continue, continue these conversations, and I'll continue them on my show, obviously. Um, I think for me, the, the adventure of discussing this and seeing what kind of people that I bring into my studio, that I interact with at events like this, what type of people I want to be around, that really is the proof. That—that mm-hmm. um, That is what, well, that's, that's what the, makes this, right? That's what makes this. So I don't know, so. I, again, I get what you're. I get yeah, yeah, the yeah. question. I, I yeah. respect the question truly, and it's and it's a it's the question, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like saying, what's the meaning of life? Right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's the big one. Um, I would say I'm on the adventure to finding that mm. out, and I, and I'm really okay with that. Uh, you know, I hope that doesn't sound um, dismissive of the question, or 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 um, or mm. like I'm trying to evade it. I'm, right. I'm really not. Um, I like. Be, and maybe this is just a function also of what I do for a living. I mean, I get to sit every week with people that in most cases are smarter than me, who have spent years working through all of these issues, as you have, John. And that is an incredible privilege that I have. So I would like to see how far I can take that.
0: It sounds like we're not gonna convert him tonight, John. <laughs> but, uh,
1: you're doing I- your best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: you're working overtime over there, I'll tell you that much. It's wonderful to hear an open description of a journey. And I try to think my way into this, that getting around these ideas is really big stuff. I mean, coming the way you've moved from the little I've understood of it, just meeting for the first time, it's most interesting to me, the way that movement is going. from where I sit, there's another element comes into it. What I mean by that is this. There's the things that we can think about existentially uh, as you're doing, and that's vastly important to me as well. The kind of people you like to be with, the evidence of that you like this, if you feel there's something outside yourself and so on and so forth. But then it comes to couple of questions. One is, could it be that that something is actually personal? Now, your Jewish um, Hebrew scriptures would say exactly so, because that's how Bereshit Genesis starts, with a God who sees, who blesses, who speaks. And one of the most interesting things to me, both as a scientist and the believer in God is the simple description of creation. And God said, let there be light. And God said, and God said. There's a sequence, as you know. But the most exciting one is the one you never hear. It's the final one. And God said to them. And that opens up a whole world of possibility that what is being claimed at least is that there's a God that speaks to me. And that means, that opens up the possibility of revelation. Where it's not simply me investigating the people I know, the things I hear, the arguments philosophically and so on. But there's another side to it. That if this is true, then God is interested in me and he's wanting me as a discussion partner. He's wanting to talk to me. And if one is open to that possibility, it seems to me to open a huge new dimension uh, to this. And the more I think about that, this is a word-based universe, scientifically and religiously in that sense. And, And therefore, the idea that there's something there, that's fantastic. There's more than the material world, but if that more is personal and can speak to us, it's worth testing the claim at least because it runs right through the whole of the Hebrew scriptures of the New Testament. That's the fundamental thing. He's a speaking God, not dead.
0: I, we, I should say, I mean, we normally never on, on my show get to this point because most of the time the person sitting opposite someone like John is a confirmed atheist and, and it's really... God is always going to be debated in the abstract. John, John, you kind of come to the point where you're saying, "Well, let's look at whether God could be personal. Yes. Whether, whether God could speak to us. Again, I feel like we're grilling you uh, really, uh, tonight. But I guess no, it's fine. It's my, interesting. My, my, I mean, th- I,
1: I genuinely, I love this. There's nothing you could ask
0: me. I don't think that would that would offend well, I, me or. I really, I'm grateful for you being an open book tonight because I suppose my next question is simply. Who Could it be? Could, do you think that it's, it's possible that there could be a God who is personally interested in you, who listens to your prayers, who is interested in the way you live your life, who wants the best for you, you know? Is that something that's on the table as a possibility for where your journey might take you, I suppose? If he walks
1: out on stage right now, I will get baptized tomorrow, <laughs> okay? <laughs> uh, like if this uh, is like, a, like a, uh, you know, Maury Povich, and here he is, everybody. <laughs> um, Yes. Well, my, my basic answer would be yes. I, why would I why would I rule that out? Yeah. Why, why would I rule that out? Why why, as you said that so eloquently, would I be like no? Like, <laughs> you know, it, it it just that just doesn't stand to reason. And that mm-hmm. that again goes back to why I said I love having these conversations. And I don't, I don't. Even though this is a little different for what you do usually. Uh, I don't take offense by it or anything like that. Like that, that's interesting to me. That, and by the way, I think that this is sort of where, um, where Jews maybe have done something a little bit differently. Where it always has been about this sort of battle about what God is. Mm-hmm. There, you know, you talk about science and mathematics. You can go to most of the, like the, the the Jewish hospitals in New York City, where they have you know the best doctors in the entire world. Many of them are Orthodox Jews who actually won't press the elevator on Shabbat because they don't want to use electricity on Shabbat. So they have, the, they have the elevators that go to every floor on Saturdays. Now, from an outsider perspective, if you weren't really thinking about it, that you'd go, well, that's completely crazy. How are these people of science and math, uh, doctors, How, why would they possibly care in this, in this crazy superstition if, if, if you come from that mm. discipline of science and math? And yet they, those people don't find it to be in conflict. So I, I don't see any of this in conflict, actually. If anything, I feel like this is really what it's about, this, this ability to, to play. Because I know that there are plenty of you guys out there that are at some level of where I'm at with some of this stuff. It's not like everyone that walks in these doors is going, this is absolutely what I believe and we mm-hmm. believe the same thing, and I wanna convert everybody to believing the same thing I do. I just, I don't believe that. I'm not gonna poll you, don't worry. Um, <laughs> but but I, I know that's true. And and we're all on those journeys together. Yes, so right. I, so of course I don't dismiss. Could God be a, a personal? You know, do we all have? Do we all have that piece of us behind us that that knows what's right when when you when you make a bad choice in life? You have those well, I shouldn't have that drink, or I shouldn't do this, or whatever it is. I don't know. Is that a personal relationship with God when you have that other thing? Or some would say, is that just the voice in your head? What is that? What is that thing? I mean, philosophers have been debating this forever.
0: Dick. I think that's a really great place just to, to draw this part of the conversation to a close. So, thank go, God. Go, okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let, let's give a round I mean so, that to John and Dave. <laughs> oh, there's a lot for you, I'm afraid, Dave. <laughs> uh. Can I text in a couple of questions myself right now? Um, I I mean, there is one very obvious one which someone wants to ask, and if you could, this could be a whole evening for you, John, but um, someone simply asks, what for you would be the key evidences for God if you were in a conversation with someone about that?
2: depends entirely whom I'm talking to, because it seems to me there are two kinds of evidence. There's the objective kind of evidence, and that is, from the scientific point of view looking at the universe, the beginning, the fine tuning of the universe, and all those pointers, the very doing of science that point to an intelligence behind the universe. That would be one set. The second set would be the whole revelation through Christ and who he is and what he did and all that kind of thing. And central to it, of course, would be the fact that I believe the death problem has been solved in the sense that at the heart of Christianity there's not only a death but a resurrection which validates the significance of the death. So I want to go into the, what I believe are the evidences for the resurrection historically and so on. And then finally there's the existential side. Many people say to me you can't be a Christian and a scientist because Christianity is not testable. And I say of course it's testable. And to be blunt about that, uh, very briefly, Christ makes certain claims that if we trust him, he'll give us peace with God, forgiveness, new life a new power. You can test that. And you know, in my life, which has been quite long, I've met many people and you meet them and they may be in the midst of a broken relationship, narcotic dependence, all kinds of stuff and you meet them six months later and they're completely different. And you say, what's happened to you? Now, they may express it in different terms. They may say, well, I became a Christian or I was born again or I was converted. But when you see that as I have done again and again, not only in my own life and those around me, but in people around, you add two and two and you get four. And I wouldn't sit here for a nanosecond as a Christian if I didn't believe it can be tested in real experience. If it doesn't work, then it's very suspect. So that's the fastest answer I can give to yeah, that.
0: Thank you very much for the, for the answer. That, that's a lot of thinking boiled down into a, a very brief answer. Question for you, Dave, uh, has come in and it's, what do you find unbelievable about Christianity? So I guess the question is, okay, you're on a journey, you're, you're willing to be open to that potential answer what are the main objections at this point that you would have to, to, to kind of embracing that kind of a, a view?
1: Well, I suppose it's a good question because I don't have a particularly good answer for it. <laughs> so I think we could probably do this one pretty quickly. I mean, I, I don't, there's no, well, other, other than what would be a generic answer about any religion, let's say some sort of like true leap of faith to, to ultimately say this, whether it's Christianity or Judaism or whatever you wanna say, whatever religion or set of ideas we're talking about. Beyond that, full jump, I, I don't have any, there's there's nothing There's nothing that's been set up here, That's not. there's nothing that John has talked about or that any of the religious thinkers that I've had on recently. Uh, the, the conversation that I had with Ravi Zacharias that's going up next week, I think, is one of the best interviews that I've ever been part of. There was nothing that he said there in the course of that hour and a half that I found objectionable or I found, um, completely incongruent with my set of beliefs, let's yeah. say. So I don't know that I have... There's no answer for that in that I'm willing to keep, continue that conversation.
0: Um, a, a few people have asked a follow-up question, effectively, <laughs> which is... <laughs> which is um, I mean, do do it, It's phrased in a few different ways, so I'll try and... Is it um, hot in here? <laughs> 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 it, it's, it kind of goes to the heart of Christianity, though, which is, um, what do you think about the central claim? that Jesus rose from the dead? Because that, at the end of the day, is at the heart of the faith John holds. Is that something you would be open to investigating, to, to kind of, you know, seeing whether there's anything in that, that claim?
1: Yeah, I'd look, I think, I don't know how many of these types of questions <laughs> I, there's going I to be. I won't too many more of them. Um, But yes, I, I can't, um, I wish I could think of a better way to say it, but I'm completely open to these discussions as they have, your, your answer actually, John, was perfect. That if, if these things weren't testable in that you, you did not see the evidence that people were living better lives, more fulfilled lives, happier lives, all those things, that you wouldn't, as a man of science, you could not sit up here. Mm-hmm. That's a really beautiful answer that, that feels to me to be complete as a, as a person of faith and a person of science. Right? and and I think that that would be a worldview that I could prescribe to and that is that actually is a worldview that I prescribe to and that doesn't exclude the fact that very early on I said that at, at the micro level some of my best friends are atheists and they are and they're deeply moral good yeah. mm-hmm. decent people um, and you've debated many of them um, so mm-hmm. there's no there's no there's no there's nothing that is so separate like say
0: I, I mean I, 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 I promise no more, no, no, no more grilling you on, on on faith questions. But the for John, a, a kind of the opposite question coming in is: um, is there have you ever questioned if there is a God? And another person asks, what, uh, whether you've ever been presented with an objection that you found difficult.
1: Oh, can I do that one? <laughs>
2: Come on, man! Of course I have. You see. Uh, this interests me because I spent my whole life not only questioning myself, but exposing myself to some of the most powerful questioners in the world who are against my viewpoint. And the reason for doing that is partially the Freudian one, the accusation that was made against me at Cambridge, you believe because your parents believe and your grandparents believe and it's Irish genetics, end of story. (laughs) So I have question everything in that sense and it's through that my certainty comes you see the word faith has flicked in and out of this conversation and we need to be careful what we mean by that by faith i don't mean a leap into the dark i mean a step into the light that's evidence-based and it's exactly the same kind of commitment in science we believe certain things about the universe because we've evidence Now, in Christianity, it is exactly parallel. Real faith is a commitment, a step based on evidence. And, of course, there's a personal dimension to Christianity that doesn't occur when you're believing Einstein's equations, for example. It's not quite the same as trusting a person. But still, it's got to be evidence-based or else it's blind. And blind faith is extremely dangerous, particularly in the sphere of religion. So asking questions all the time is a process that I discover in the Bible itself, which is one of the things that makes it credible. Jesus was always asking questions and he didn't always answer them. And his disciples were asking questions. My great intellectual hero is Socrates who was forced to commit suicide because he corrupted the youth of Athens, which meant that he taught kids to ask questions their parents couldn't answer, which is usually what kids do. But it seems to me that it's very important. My whole process of relating to people, as Dave's is, is asking them questions and getting them to open themselves. So, yes, absolutely. This, this is the way the thing works. And that is where assurance comes. It's fear that stops us questioning uh, the propositions or the commitments of, of what we believe. And I want to break through that fear barrier and get into a proper public discourse. Um, there's a question here
0: um, which relates to um, a story you told on your podcast of, of being, I think, a Um, Jordan Peterson lecture night and you met a couple who had um, both been through a difficult time Um, perhaps you can tell the story Um, uh, I think a miscarriage was involved and uh, there were difficulties in the family and the way you responded was was the interesting perhaps part of that story as well do you want to tell the story and, and just maybe dig into that a bit? Because the person asked that they'd just like to hear a little bit more about it.
1: Yeah, that. I, you know, it's so interesting that someone's asking this because I actually don't remember telling this story publicly, but yeah. I, I must have said it publicly at some point. Um, I don't remember, we were in the UK, I don't remember um, what, what city we were in, uh, but a couple came up to me before the show and they both yeah. they both looked very, they were just sort of distraught. You know, Sometimes you, people come up to you and you could just see it in their face, you could feel it in their body language. And they started talking to me, and um, basically, it turned out that uh, he it was, it was a young couple. I mean, they were in their maybe late 20s, early 30s. And the guy had just found out that he had, like, stage 4 cancer and didn't have much time to live. And then this, I, I mean, you can't believe that this is actually real. The, the woman found out that um, she was pregnant. She was a few months pregnant. And the fetus had died and she was going to have to have it removed like the next day or something like that. I mean, like unimaginably horrific circumstances. And they said this to me and then said that, you know, Jordan's helped them get a little meaning over the last few weeks as they've been going to doctors and all of these things. And I think the reason that the the person's mentioning that I bring it up is the only thing that I could say was God bless you. God bless you guys. That's what I said. I had, there was nothing else... There was just nothing else I could say. What could I possibly say? Uh, I'm sorry to hear about what you're going through. I I, I hugged them. I I, I tried to just kind of stand there and be with them. Um, But that happened to be what popped up in my brain. So if that, in a weird way, if that is evidence of something, if that is that when faced with unimaginable, I mean, no one can possibly imagine the level Mm -hmm. of of horror of that situation. I hope I'm getting it fully technically right. That's what
2: what I had left, I
0: would say. It it was the only words that you felt.
2: Can I make a brief comment? Because I didn't answer your question. And one of your questions to me was, do you meet objections that you find difficult to answer? And I do, and that's one. The problem of moral evil and pain, which is what you talked about, is the hardest question that any of us face. And it has been a very important part of my life to try and think that through. I arrived in Christchurch, New Zealand, two days after the earthquake. And I had to cancel all my talks and replace them with earthquake, why? Now that's not easy to deal with. Now, the atheists say, well, it's just the way the world is. There is no God, and that's just what you'd expect. But you see, If you abolish God, and I'm not gonna go into details on this, but it's hugely important. If you abolish God, actually you can make the problem worse because there's now no hope. If you bring God into the equation from the Christian perspective, there is the hope of the resurrection. And not going into it in detail, I want to say two big things to this problem. They're not answers. That would be simplistic and trivial but they're a window into a possibility. And the window into the possibility is this. If it really is true that that's God incarnate on the cross, what does it mean? Well, at the very least, it means that God has not remained distant from human suffering. He has become part of it. And so your God bless you, I think is a huge layers of meaning underlying it. That's the first thing. And the fact that Jesus rose from the dead means that ultimately there is real hope. Why? Because one of the things the early Christians preached was that the resurrection guaranteed a final judgment. And we don't like that idea, but think about it. If there's going to be an utterly fair assessment, and as I said, I've been to Auschwitz many times, If there's going to be a judgment that deals with these things, that gives me a window of hope. And so, therefore, I think this is the hardest problem for anybody and any philosophy and any worldview. Nobody escapes it.
0: A question for for you this time, John, and maybe you might want to comment on it as well, Dave. But Someone asked, what does it take for a person to move from an abstract intellectual belief in God to this personal experiential faith, which you've talked about?
2: Well, that's assuming that they start with an abstract faith. Now, people come different ways. Our journeys, and that's why it's so interesting talking about journey. And I haven't finished my journey yet. There are lots of questions I've got and things, uh, unresolved. I started by the existential side, the personal side. I saw it was real. But then as a child, I was taught to ask the question. So the intellectual side and the practical side walked hand in hand throughout my life. And some people come to faith in Christ because they've been befriended by somebody that shows them real friendship and it's existential. Others come because they've been challenged intellectually. I was speaking in Germany uh, a week ago and speaking with a very intellectual person. And what started him off in his journey was at school. He, he was grown up, in a, he grew up in a home where all his father said about everything was everything's lies. That was his everything's lies, total skepticism. And he had a school friend, they sat together. And the school friend said to him one day, he said, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And this chap thought, what? And he started to investigate it. And that led him to become an ancient historian. And now in Germany, he'll fill a hall with 5,000 people talking about how he became a Christian from skepticism. So the intellectual side got him first. So, you can't generalize at all. But I I think in that sense, if a person is just cerebral about it, they haven't understood it. Because Christ does make demands. There's a relational thing. There are moral dimensions to it. Uh, and so, it needs to move. How shall I put it? I'm worried about the distinction because... Even when we're emotional about something, the emotions are precipitated by our thoughts. You can't separate thought and emotion. But I think the important thing is that since, let me put it this way, God is not simply a philosophical theory. He's a person, and therefore our response to persons is different from our response to, say, a mathematical equation. And we need to take the various dimensions and aspects into account. So I'd simply want to encourage a person like that to think about, well, what does Christi, Christianity mean that you should be doing? Mm-hmm. But since it's an abstract question, I don't know the person, everybody's different.
0: Uh, I'm tossing it over to you, Dave. There's a sense in which, you know, we've talked a lot about Jordan Peterson this evening, but when, when I see him on stage, he's not afraid of getting emotional. Um, In fact, he quite frequently is close to tears very often when he's talking about the search for meaning, uh, when he's engaging with where people are at in their struggles and so on. Um, And in that sense, he's he's quite the antidote to the kind of very coldly rational kind of approach that that many sort of big thinkers often take to these issues. Is that something that's attracted you, I don't know, to to, to the way in which he engages with that kind of aspect of reality and and the, the very personal way in a sense in which, which he approaches these kinds of issues?
1: Yeah, well, I, I can answer that two ways. First, not specifically with Jordan, but I think one of the reasons that the YouTube game and the podcast game and all of the digital stuff and all of this this new set of personalities that you guys all watch and consume and listen to, the reason it's working is because these people are being people. These, these are actual people. I mean, the, the person that you... See when I'm doing something on YouTube, that's this guy that's right in front of you right now. I happen to be on stage with a mic, but I'm the same person when I step down there and talk to you guys. Jordan's the same person, as I said, he lived those 12 rules. He's the same exact guy, right? There's a little something when there's a camera there. Uh, I forget what the the uh, sign. There's a Theory, you know, that you all, when the camera's on, you turn it on like 5% or something. Mm -hmm. But I think what's happened over the last 20 or so years with cable news is that everyone on television became so incredibly fake and overprepared and and really ridiculously robotic that there is a breath of fresh air when people just actually are decent, when people just actually can look each other in the eye and not uh, pretend that they have every answer to every question. Mm -hmm. I think that's a deeply powerful thing. So when Jordan would go on stage, and he, I kid you not, I, I, it's almost unimaginable, but the guy, 110 some odd shows that we did together, he never gave the same lecture twice. He would give a different, some nights he would talk about all 12 rules, some nights he would talk about one rule, some nights four rules, some nights he would just talk about the media, some nights he would talk about YouTube. I mean, it was just whatever was in his mind. And and you know, the book, he was on a book tour. They wanted him to sell a book. Sometimes the book never came up. I mean, he he just did, he, But but to answer your question specifically, He was being present as much as possible. Uh, That is something that I really try to do in my life. Um, And when you're doing it right, you don't really have to try because it just starts happening and you just start being real. And that's why actually I've thoroughly, as I just said to you guys at halftime or whatever we're calling it of the Dave Rubin grilling, um, um, I've really enjoyed this because this is real. This Mm -hmm. is real. And the more that we can do that, the better the better we can understand each other. So there would be nights where he would be on stage, you know, telling the story that I'm sure many of you have heard where he talks about Pinocchio and the, the reason that you have to wish upon a star and what that means, and then he would link it to the to a biblical story. And and he would tear up and he would cry and you could hear the crack in his voice. And it was real that we would be backstage right after the show, just sitting in the green room, and I would just kinda sit there and give him his moment to to collect himself. So it was real, and I think all that really is, is being vulnerable, being open, being, he was, the best way I could describe it was, what I saw the guy do was that every night that he went on stage, he tried to take as much of his intellect and his set of beliefs, he would take them as far as he could on any given night, and there were nights where I could see him stretch that a little bit further. That's a pretty incredible
0: thing to be around. On a slightly lighter note, someone asks, um, Jordan Peterson versus Ben Shapiro, wrestling match, who wins?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, Jordan's tall and lanky. Ben is quick (laughs) and short. Um, So I feel like he'd take out the legs, you know? So Ben probably, Ben also, you know, Ben's about, you know, 20 years younger, so... um, so, so many of these
0: questions actually are... He
1: could use the yarmulke as some kind of boomerang or something, you know. There's things, there's things the guy
0: can do. Um, so here's a serious question. What am think. I doing this, here, this is, exactly? This is, a really, this, this is a tough one. I mean, I, and I've heard this, you, you put this position, but as much as you obviously have a great deal of respect for people like Ben Shapiro and, and other religious figures, they, you disagree with them on some pretty fundamental things, some ethical issues for instance, so for instance Ben Shapiro is very strongly opposed to abortion and someone asks you on on text here, what what about you, what would it take to change your position on that particular ethical issue knowing that you are pro-choice?
1: So I describe myself as begrudgingly pro-choice, which uh, I take no pleasure in even discussing abortion, I find this to be the issue beyond any other political issue, I find this to be the most polarizing and almost impossible to talk about because you're talking about, you're talking about the most existential questions there is, which is the beginning of life, right? And the way that it gets framed, unfortunately, through the media is that if you're on the right, you somehow hate women, and if you're on the left, you somehow hate babies. And that, that sort of ridiculous false choice that we're constantly basically playing ping pong between is insane. My position basically is that, look, I, I believe in the individual. Now, I get why that can be messy in a conversation about abortion, because I do believe that a fetus is life, I do. Right. And, we can, and it's up to ethicists and philosophers and all sorts of, uh, of scientific-minded people and, and theologians actually as well, to decide is that the moment the sperm meets the egg or is that two weeks later and there's different religious traditions that can teach you all sorts of different things. My, my belief is that the individual, we, we as a society, Cannot have a perfect system that is perfect for everyone all the time. What we can try to do is have some set of rules that can maximize human flourishing the most it can. What what I believe is basically that you have a couple-week window. I, I you know a few years ago, and the first time I debated this with Ben Shapiro, who's obviously. Uh, completely pro-life, so he's completely anti-abortion. I used to say 20 weeks because there was scientific evidence that at 20 weeks, the fetus can actually feel pain. And what Ben said to me, which I think is a completely legitimate argument, he said, well, so you're saying, you're admitting it's a life and you're acknowledging, well, if you're saying 20 weeks, well then 18 weeks is obviously still a life. Why not 18 weeks? And I granted him that inconsistency in this in this view because I'm not trying to come up with a perfect system. I'm trying to come up with some system that would allow the 350 million people that live in this country to have some some guideline that we could most somewhat agree on, something like that. The, the problem right now is that the, the 12 Democratic candidates have gone so off the deep end with this that they're talking about, I mean, they're literally talking about post-birth abortions. Like we have heard some beyond hysterical, crazy stuff. Tulsi Gabbard, who I had on my show, she said that she would not want third-term abortions, which by any measure, even if it's not for you guys, let's say here, because I'm assuming you're mostly pro-life, that was a that would have been considered a pretty moderate position for a Democrat 10 years ago. But for her now in that field, that is a wildly out there position because they all believe basically you can have an abortion at any time. I mean, this is even where Biden, who's supposed to be the adult in the group, is now kinda, right? He's supposed, I mean, that's why they dragged mm-hmm. him back into this. He didn't wanna do it. They're, you know, but he was supposed to be the the adult and go, guys. No, you're all bananas, and you know, settle down. But it's 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 not working. So, um, was your question what would get me to change? Well, on well that or, I suppose
0: that that would be a really interesting thing the, to ask. Would 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 this journey that you're going on of being open to to, to potentially God and to, to religious answers to things cause you to to reconsider? Your, well, I would say these things that.
1: don't have nothing to do with each other, sure. right? So. Mm-hmm. If we find you know if we find a speck of something on the moon that some has some resemblance of life, a, you know, a cell or something, uh, we say it's life. So I'm not denying that, that from conception, I'm actually not denying that's life. What I'm trying to do just as someone that talks about things in a public way um, is to you're not going to satisfy everybody all the time. And by the way, the, the most uncomfortable truth about this is, that humans get left with all sorts of horrific choices that they don't want to have to deal with. And if abortion was completely illegal, that actually would not stop abortion. It would also make it much more dangerous. There would be access for people that had certain resources financially that other people wouldn't have. That's just- It's a, There's, very just, complex. A, there's yeah. just a series yeah. of uncomfortable yeah. truths that yeah. we would have to deal with uh, to do that. Yeah. But I would say, I would say I'm, I'm begrudgingly pro-choice. And, and trust me, this, is, this one more than a, than a God question uh, because this is
0: a sort of policy issue of, I mean, of it, here
1: and now. I find it to be uh, the most difficult one to, to answer.
0: I mean, John, I'd, I'd just be interested in your reflection on this, not necessarily getting to the bottom of this issue, which, which could take us all evening, but but to what extent for you does being a, a believer in God, and specifically Christianity, mean that your views on that kind of thing have to take a certain direction um, in terms of the, the views of, of abortion and the sanctity of life and that kind of thing?
2: I think the important thing to realize, and we don't focus it sharply enough, is that in part, ethics are worldview dependent. What I mean by that is this. If you think that a fetus is just simply, at the early stage, an undifferentiated block of cells, it's only matter. Why not deal with it? As has been put to me by a world-class gynecologist. And I pointed out to her, I said, but you come to that because of your atheism. Now, I said to her, what would you do? That's not only life after conception, it's human life. From where I sit, it bears the image of God. What right have I to stop it? So that the ethics are worldview dependent and This is one of the huge problems, way beyond that question. You know, if we teach kids in school that they are purely animals, full stop, we'll see they start to behave like animals. And that's exactly what we see in our society. Knife crime in London has just gone off the map. But it's because people have been taught. And uh, you were talking about Abortion, uh, these killing infants after birth—that's Peter Singer's view, and I've debated him. Uh, and the issue stems straight from his atheism. And so, I think we ought to be more upfront about the connection between some of these issues and the worldview of the society around. If, if I could
1: just add on that quickly, you know, I, I mentioned this equality forum that the Democrats had last night, and one of the things that that. Uh, it seems to me that they're always trying to outdo themselves in who can be the most left or the most progressive or the most collectivist. And you may have heard this last night, but Beto O'Rourke basically said that churches and places of worship that don't that aren't for same-sex marriage, he would want them to lose their tax exemption. That, that's an absolutely absurd uh, position, but it, this is why those of us, we can disagree on on these sort of margin issues, but we have to come together around the freedom issue, number one. Because what will come next is that they'll say, all right, well now if you're not completely pro-choice, you should lose your tax exemption. And they will just keep encroaching on every set of beliefs you have. So I may not share that exact belief with you, but I would 100% defend your ability to have that belief in the place that you worship without question.
0: Um got one for you here, John, and, and it's keeping on a sort of pretty serious uh, tack as well. Um, this person asks, on the premise that we are created in the image of God, and we each have value, how do you respond to the growing uh, rate of suicide uh, in the West? Uh, I think we're seeing this especially among men, uh, that, that, that suicide is uh, increasing uh, at an alarming rate. What's, Where do you see that coming from? Um, where, how do you speak to it, as someone who does believe people are made in the image of God, what, what, what does suicide have to, what's the response, I suppose, to someone who goes that route?
2: This is a very complicated question because suicides are all different. I have a colleague who's one of the world's experts on suicide, and just talking to it makes me realize that this is a very complex thing. But just thinking about it simplistically, People tend to commit suicide when they've nothing to live for. They've got no future that they can see. And I do believe that the Christian message addresses that head on. By giving people that, and I have personally seen people come from the edge of suicide and become settled, balanced, everything else because they've come to faith in Christ and they've got that meaning that has answered that need to destroy themselves. And the difficulty is, I'm too old now to really understand the vicious effect that Facebook, for example, likes and dislikes have on young people where They get bullied in cyberspace and they feel completely awful and they lose all their self-worth. I mean, the cruelty that people exhibit to one another is unbelievable. And what's the answer to that? Well, the answer to, I've got to start with me. I love Jordan's thing, clean up your own room before you clean up the world. And it needs to start with me, the people I know, looking for the signs of depression, of feeling down, of feeling lonely, of feeling meaningless. We can all do a little something. It may not be much, it may not hit the headlines, but it could take someone back from the brink. There's no universal answer to it.
0: Uh, There is a follow-up question that this has sparked and has been coming in. which is what about the case of believing Christians who perhaps commit suicide? And I think there has been quite a significant case here in Southern California recently.
2: Well, I know of one or two very significant cases of people I actually knew. And I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychologist, but we've got to realize that our minds can actually break down there used to be a time, fortunately it's passed, where psychiatrists and psychologists were looked upon by many in the Christian community with a lot of suspicion. If you broke your leg, you went to a doctor, and that was fine. Everybody thought that was fine. But if your mind broke, that wasn't fine. And I think we've got to realize that even to believing Christians, they're still human they still have got flaws and difficulties. Your temperament doesn't change overnight, you may have noticed, when you become a Christian. And if you haven't noticed it, you ought to wake up and notice it. (laughs) And, And therefore, we can break down. The chemical imbalance in our brain can go. And people jump off a cliff or shoot themselves we need to be very careful how we judge those people. Because we don't see inside their mind. And I want to say, okay, this has happened, it's tragic. But don't judge what was going on in their mind. You've got to leave it to God, ultimately. Can I just that? I would just add one thing to that
1: quickly, which is there's a strange paradox right now because we're more connected than we've ever been, right? Mm. We're all on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and all these things, and we can connect with people and we can send pictures to people and do all this stuff, right? And it feels very connected. Uh, And then on the other hand, the, the number one type of email that I get is people that are afraid to say what they think. And they say they watch my show because they're afraid to say what they think. And I happen to be having some of the conversations that are the things that they're thinking about and i suspect that if you're walking around as most of us do probably every day not really saying the things that you're thinking yeah. the the end result of that will be such a disconnect from from reality because all you've got then left is your own mind and if you do that over and over and over and over again you got you got nothing left and i and i suspect that would be the type of place where there would be You could see yourself having to make that horrific choice because connectedness
2: is not friendship
0: Yeah, absolutely um we we've gone over some pretty big issues tonight um and we've had many many more questions in than 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 we can answer um there's there's just one maybe which kind of sums up the evening (laughs) to some extent that we've had uh which is a question for for john referring to dave which is John, do you want Dave to become a Christian? <laughs> <laughs> I really have to ask my agent what the original pitch was. <laughs> I, I, I I, don't choose, well, the, the questions kind of choose themselves yeah. here. They're, so many people are basically asking, hey, what, what, can you ask Dave this question about Christianity? This, so I, I, had, I had very little choice in the matter. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing the answer is yes, John. The,
2: You're not guessing. (laughs) (laughs) Because I've experienced a life which I don't deserve, which has been full of profound joy, a journey that has been deeply meaningful to me and it's connected with my relationship with Christ. Of course, not only Dave, but everybody here because there may be many skeptics here and people watching online. Of course my desire is that they can share that experience that I share and become Christians. But, but, I'm not in the business of browbeating people and forcing them beyond where they are. I, feel very strongly, and that's why I believe in public discussion. Let's have the discussion on the table from different points of view, but trust the people to make up their own mind. And so my motivation is to get the message out and leave the results with God. But my desire is that, of course it's that, don't specify Dave alone, per chap. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, John. Yeah. Just think of our neighbors and our friends. Is it our desire? I, I, I think, when I'm asked a question like this, I, I get very slightly nervous, because I want to relate to people as whole persons, not just as evangelism fodder. And that's very important.
0: <laughs> Dave, you, you have been a tremendous sport tonight, and, and I can only say you've been so gracious and willing to engage with. You know, exactly. Occasionally being browbeaten, actually, um, <laughs> on this. But um, uh, I, I guess, you know, if we come to just some final thoughts at the end of our conversation now, what for you has been the value of having a conversation like this? Um, what, what for you, why do you sit down week in and week out with people that you may not necessarily agree with on everything, but you're, you're interested in finding stuff out from? what What's the value of these kind of big conversations around culture, faith, and
1: God in the end? Yeah, well, first off, I, it never struck me as so obvious. You know, Jews don't try to convert people. That's made this doubly funny for me, Yeah. I think. Um, no, this, first off, just joking aside, this, this has been an absolute pleasure. You know, I, I have found that when I am... Uh, having an interview with someone that is really real, when when we're suddenly hitting some unchartered territory or I can really see somebody exploring a new idea or not giving me the packaged answer and, and we've really connected in that deep way, that I can actually feel something. I, and I really mean that. I can feel a physical reaction to that, that's sort of warm, I can't really fully describe mm-hmm. it, but it, but it's not just something physical. It's almost like, truly, it's almost like I can see so, almost like an aura around somebody. and that, So this is sort of a religious uh, something, I guess, I'm giving to you. But I can feel something when something is truly real. And I think we all know those moments when when you've sort of let all of the other stuff go and you're just having something that's real. There's, some, there's something there, however you want to describe that. Um, I love being on this type of adventure. This, this type of conversation, this is exactly why I do what I do. Um, because we desperately need it. You know, there's been a, the, the, I think the theme throughout all of this, beyond the personal stuff to me, that I think the theme really was that there is a crisis of meaning and we're all sort of realizing that the world is in complete flux right now. The future feels like it's in flux. I'm 43 years old, I was born in 76. At no point in my life until the last say two years or three years did, did the world feel like it was in flux, like the future is actually confused. Will America continue to exist the way it exists? Will the West continue to exist the way it exists? The UK—I mean, you guys have all sorts of oh, yeah. crazy things it's going on. It's an interesting on. adventure yeah. for us too. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, I could do an hour on Brexit. We'll let that be. Uh, that's more difficult than God. Um, <laughs> so, so many people are feeling that though—that that sense of uncertainty and. For the final Jordan reference that I'll make tonight, I mean, he was—he ha- was—has been trying to hand people a little bit of a little bit of—not a little bit—some of the tools to make the world a little less uncertain. Because if you can—if you can hold yourself first, then you can deal with the rest of it, right? Um, so this is a this is an absolute absolute pleasure, and, uh, and I will gladly have you both on my show, we can, right. wow. we can do this together, or we can do it separately, and we can continue these conversations. And more than anything else, what I would say is, you know, for you guys here, I think there's a feeling out there that um, you know, if you listen to the way the mainstream frames everything, it's like somehow you guys are the bad guys, or, or Christians are the bad guys, or conservatives are the bad guys, and this is just sort of factory setting, boring dribble. I, I know it's not true because I'm in this room with you, right? And I'm not gonna get lynched on the way out. <laughs> <laughs> um, right? Like we know that. there's yeah, I yeah, know I got it. I got like a few people answer that. He's not getting lynched. okay. <laughs> um, we, we know that, right and and I think take confidence in that and and you know, start saying what you think. That, that's yeah. all that I'm doing, truly. I'm, I'm talking to people and interviewing people, but really, all I'm really doing is saying what I think. And for some reason, in 2019, in the freest country in the history of the world, that's a special thing. I have no idea why. Well, I, I know why, but I don't know why I don't fear it. I, I just don't. But I think if all of you started saying what you think a little bit more, you might find out that the people that are your neighbors and your friends and even and your coworkers and even your family members who you disagree with politically, you, you might actually start changing them, but you'll never change them if you don't say what you think. So that would be my main message, more than anything else. Awesome.
0: I, I think that's a great place to draw it to a close. So let me first of all say thank you to John, thank you to Dave for a, a really amazing, very open, very honest conversation tonight. Thank you all for all of your interactions, the questions that came in. Sorry we couldn't get to all of them tonight. Uh, I just wanna say a big thank you as well to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa who have hosted us. Can we give a big round of applause?